If you would take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, this morning we'll be looking at the first 14 verses of what is often known of as the Olivet Discourse. It was just a few months before COVID that we began a series in the Gospel of Matthew. And here we are almost two and a half years later after starting it and coming to what is often known as some of the most contentious and argumentative portions of this gospel. This morning, I don't think we're going to break out in any fights. I'm pretty sure. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, if you would stand in the honor of reading God's word this morning, if you are able. Matthew chapter 24, and beginning in verse 1. Holy Scripture reads this. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to, the, came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming, end of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my, for my namesake. And then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. You may be seated. If you remember from several weeks ago, in the last several weeks, we've seen Jesus has entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to the cheers of the crowd. He then went to the temple to drive out the money changers who were using a place of worship as a marketplace. Then Jesus went on to answer questions of Pharisees and Sadducees, and then he addressed the crowds about the dangers of both of those groups of religious leaders and the judgment that is coming upon them. After this, in Matthew 24, Jesus leaves the temple. But as he is walking away, the disciples try to point out the buildings of the temple. Maybe how big it is, how many buildings there are. And Jesus takes this opportunity to let them know that this building will not always be here. There is coming a time when this temple, like Solomon's temple before it, will be destroyed. Jesus seems to be prophesying, and he is, that the temple will be completely razed. 
not just captured, not merely vandalized or damaged, but you notice that his words were given, not one stone will lie upon another. This will be brought down to the ground. It would be a major catastrophic event that destroyed this massive temple that Herod built. This would be an alarming prophecy to anyone. The temple was the epicenter of Jerusalem. It was about 1.5 million square feet, give or take a few, the equivalent to what is 35 acres. It towered over the surrounding landscape. Josephus notes that the temple was covered on all sides with gold. And on sunny days, of which there are many in Jerusalem, it would shine like the sun itself. So how could this temple be destroyed, as Jesus says? Indeed, many of Jesus' Jewish listeners would have deemed this impossible. This comes up later as Jesus is being crucified, and they mock him for saying that the temple would be destroyed and in three days built back up. Jesus obviously would be predicting something else then, but here he's mentioning that this temple will be destroyed. All that you see, there will be not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus predicts the destruction of Herod's temple, and that destruction occurs in AD 70. The temple was deliberately leveled to the ground after it was gutted by fire. After Jesus predicts this about the temple, he and the disciples make their way to the Mount of Olives. And the prediction of the temple's destruction and the person of Jesus causes the disciples to ask him two questions. The teachings of Jesus that follow in Matthew 24 is referred to as the Olivet Discourse because as it says here, it takes place on the Mount of Olives. And the discourse largely discusses the future and the reign of the Son of Man. But those two questions that the disciples will ask him are seen in verse 3. Tell us then, when will these things be? Referring back to the destruction of the temple. You say that the temple will be destroyed. When will these things, and we'll keep in mind that phrase, these things, as we go the next several weeks through Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, when will these things be? And second question, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, it could be likely that the disciples thought that both of those things would be the same event, that when Herod's temple is destroyed, that is the sign or could be the sign because of the catastrophic devastation that would be caused of the end. Think of something massive happening in our day. There was probably not too, many, not too few Christians who thought when the Twin Towers went down that this was it, right? I think series in Revelation became very popular after that. Terrorism is happening. Worlds are colliding. All of these things happening. COVID issued a lot of series in Revelation happening. This is it. Rumors of wars and tribulations and difficulties. Folks in every age, when lots of big catastrophic events happen, guess what? Series on Revelation and the end times become very popular because we, like many other people, begin to look to the signs of the end of the age instead of the king of the end of the age. Is this passage about the end times or is it referring to these things which regard only the temple and its impending destruction? Is this passage about the end times for us 
Or was it merely about events that happened then in AD 70 and the destruction of the temple? Some have read it to be only describing the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. Are these events here that Jesus gives speaking only of things that will happen in the very near future? As Matthew has written before AD 70, are these events going to happen in the lifetime of those who are listening? As Matthew 24 verse 34 states, when Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. They will say that everything this passage mentions has been fulfilled and that the end when Jesus returns can come at any time. Others, though, say that this passage does not refer to the destruction of Jerusalem at all, but that everything Jesus says here is for the future. None of it is applied currently to those in the audience that Jesus is speaking to. None of it will occur until right before the end comes or Jesus returns. Now, we have to admit both of those seem somewhat odd in the sense of why would Jesus be speaking to an audience of people right in front of him saying things that don't apply to any of them? That wouldn't make any sense, we would see. Jesus hasn't done that anywhere else. But also the other one, to only be focusing on events that are happening right now that don't have application for us believers later. Jesus is the big A author, superseding or coming over Matthew as the small A author. Jesus, being the divine author, can orchestrate all of these events to mean exactly what he means, seeing the entire scope of history all at once. For several reasons, I think both of those positions that we mentioned, either one being this is only about the past and the destruction of Jerusalem, or this is only about the future and has nothing to do with Jerusalem, I think both of those positions are untenable, not able to be true. So for the next several weeks, as we feed on this portion of the Olivet Discourse, I think it is meant to be applied both then in Jesus' day and every day since until Jesus returns and the end comes. Every believer who has lived in every age is able to look at this passage and apply it meaningfully, looking back at history and the destruction of Jerusalem that is prophesied among other events, and also be able to long for and look forward to the coming of Christ when he comes in glory. We can illustrate it with a mountain range. When you look at the mountains from a distance, they can look very close to each other. When in fact, they can be miles apart. Also, sometimes based upon how you're looking at a mountain, you can be coming up to see, let's say you're driving from, if you've ever made the drive on I-84, from the Dalles to Portland. And all of a sudden, you come in the Dalles, and at some point in there, and I don't know the exact mile marker, you can see this massive white mountain called Mount Hood. It's in Portland, it's a distance away, but you can see it, and it's beautiful. It's covered with snow. It's the most quintessential mountain look, right? It's all pointed and snowy, and it's wonderful. And you see it in all of its glory. And then all of a sudden, you're driving on I-84, and what comes up that obscures your view? Not something bigger than Mount Hood, is it? No, it's these little cliffs and edge rocks and hills and ridges that all of a sudden, because they're closer to you, block the view of Mount Hood. Now, they're not taller than Mount Hood. They're not more imposing than Mount Hood, but they're closer. And so they all of a sudden take all of your attention, and you can't even see a mountain that is 11,000 some feet. 
that's just off in the distance is as though it's not even there because all of your vision is taken up with what's right in front of you that is only a few hundred feet tall. The same is true as we look at the coming of Jesus in Scripture. It's often referred to as the day of the Lord. The biblical author is aware of the great and terrible day of the Lord. They often call it terrible day of the Lord because this day comes with judgment, with wrath on those who are apart from Christ, but terrible in a very different sense. We see this awesome coming of Christ. But this day of the Lord that comes, the biblical author is aware of it and sees it coming, the day of the Lord being one that means when Jesus comes, that's this great day of the Lord, when he comes and when he comes again. So those stand as these massive mountain peaks within scripture. But the biblical author also sees these great and terrible days of the Lord that are these big moments of judgment. And depending on their perspective and where they're standing, those seem right in front of their face, just like a ridge or a small hill might seem to you as you're hiking it and you can't see on the other side. So too, for the biblical authors and the people of God, often that great and terrible day of the Lord is what's fixated, they're fixated on. The same is true for us, right? When we go through difficulties and circumstances that are beyond us, this is the worst. Really? This is the worst? Well, no, we know that when Jesus returns, in very real aspect, that will be the worst for those who are outside of Christ. But this right now feels the worst, whether that's the pain of getting your tonsils out or the pain of going through the loss of a family member or financial loss. That feels like the worst right now because it's right now, it's on top of you. You're experiencing it. It's hard to see, to keep clear that view of what is coming because it's obscured by what is here. This text in Matthew 24 and 25 is doing just this for us and the original readers. It is letting us know that tribulations will come both now and when Jesus returns that we must be ready for all of them, not taking our eyes off of Jesus, not giving in to our fears or the circumstances, not giving up on our faith, but enduring until the end. Who knows? At some point, that tribulation that we are facing will be the last one, either because we die in it or because that was the last one. And the next mountain peak is the return of Christ. The two questions the disciples ask again are, when will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And the second one was, what will be the sign of the end of the age and the return of Christ? You see, there's two questions there, the now and the later, the now and the what is to come, the already and the not yet. As we walk through these two chapters, we'll Keep these questions in mind Jesus is answering for his disciples and for future readers like us of God's word. So just a couple points this morning. I think there's three. First is we are all dying to know the future, right? We are all dying to know the future. This is why, like we mentioned, when 9-11, coronavirus, those things happen, big difficulties, let's go read Revelation. I need to figure this out. Is it happening right now? Is this the end? We're all dying to know the future. And when we do die, we will know what's going to happen. 
And I think we'll be a lot less concerned about events. Jesus' comment about the temple got his disciples thinking about when this destruction might occur. You notice that he says this statement right as they're down by the temple. Uh, the disciples said to him, do you point out all of the buildings of the temple? It says in verse one. They're right there. He's just left. This massive imposing structure that's covered with some layer of gold is standing right there in front of them. And it's sort of like that mountain peak. This is all that we can see. It's imposing. It's right on top of you. So what does Jesus do? He takes them up on the Mount of Olives. Quite a different perspective from up there. Quite a different perspective, not being down on the ground with a temple. I don't know the height of the Mount of Olives. I didn't even think to look that up. But as they're up on a different perspective, they're able to gain by Jesus and his teaching a quite a different perspective. Their question is, when will these things be? When, when will this happen, Jesus? You mentioned this is going to happen. Is this going to usher in the end? And we can be just like the disciples, eager to know what is going to happen before Jesus returns. The disciples believed, as stated in their questions, that the destruction of the temple had to occur at the end. How could something this large be brought down to rubble unless it was the end? And Jesus is coming back. There's no other way to see that. The disciples believe that Jesus will come back. That's incredible. Their theology already, they believe in his coming again. They believe that he will come back, but they want to know when. They want to know what sign will be that shows them that he is returning. They believe he's going to come back. They believe the temple will be destroyed, just as he says. But can you give us some details? Can you We'd like to know a little bit more. Jesus, we can plan a whole lot better if we just knew when you're going to come back. We can prepare. We can get everything ready. We'll be able to watch for your signs if you just let us know what to look for. If I was the, the disciples asking these questions, I know I would be asking for the exact reasons that I just mentioned. I want to plan ahead. Jesus, please help out a brother. Can you tell me when you're coming? Because danger is going to happen, difficulties are coming, and I want to be ready for it. I don't want to be blindsided. Jesus, go ahead and tell us. We're your closest people here. You, this is one thing you can do. The disciples did not ask, Jesus, when will we see you again? Or Jesus, what would it be like? What will it be like to spend eternity in your presence? Too often... Discussions surrounding the end times, or we can put it in the big 25 cent word, that is eschatology. Too often, those discuss discussions can quickly focus on what events will happen immediately before Jesus returns, and when will it all occur? Instead of realizing that the Son of God is coming again, and that we get to spend eternity with Him, instead of waiting pursuing holiness and desiring to endure to the end, we can get fixated on details. We're all dying to know the future. And yet Jesus himself states several times in the New Testament that no one can know when he will return, when his second coming will occur. Mark chapter 13. It's the Olivet Discourse in Mark. This is Mark's version of it. But verse 32 says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. 
nor the Son. I don't know how that happens, but only the Father. So somehow there's a day fixed when Christ will return that is only known by the Father. No one can know. If Jesus doesn't know, none of our charts and graphs and prophecy thoughts are going to get us there. Guarantee it. Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, when he's ascending into heaven, the disciples ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. These guys are fixated on details of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, when I go, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you will receive power and you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. The kingdom will come by means of the spirit working through you. That's so much greater than details about, is it right now? Is it, is it, is it going to be right now? When are you going to come back? What, what sign are we going to look for? Too often, I can be just like the disciples at the ascension and here in Matthew 24, thinking about details that take my focus off of the person of Jesus himself. Even though it's stated several times in the New Testament that we will not know when Jesus returns, when the kingdom comes fully, or when the kingdom is fully here, many Christians are not content with that answer. And so they vigorously search out the book of Revelation and Daniel, sometimes exclusively. You ever know Christians who that's all they want to do is spend time in Revelation and Daniel. And then I look at that and I go, how depressing. I mean, you're looking at the coming of Christ, yes, but Where's the rest of the scriptures that are being neglected? But because we desire to try and figure everything out, we can often become imbalanced in our Christian view. Our knowledge of God becomes imbalanced because we're only expecting it to happen this way and in this manner. And in the same way, do you remember when Jesus comes in his first coming in the incarnation? And guess who missed it? The very ones who are looking at all of the details, studying all of the texts of scriptures, the Pharisees completely missed Jesus' coming. Why? Because they're looking for all of these details to happen instead of the person himself. Instead of saying, God is greater than anything I could imagine, I can't fully comprehend him or his word on my own, and God could come in a way that is far superior than what I've been given, and I've been looking at the wrong thing. We read of judgment and tribulations to come, and we want to avoid them. We want to know what to expect. We want a timeline in place so we can prepare adequately. But is that what Jesus wants for us to be doing right now until he comes? Well, thankfully, Jesus tells us how we can be living right now in preparation for the end when he does return when the great and terrible day of the Lord comes and Jesus returns, or when the day of the Lord comes and the temple is destroyed, or the day of the Lord comes and you're taken into captivity, or the day of the Lord comes and for you, 
someone close to you dies or you're involved in a tragic accident or something difficult happens that is a smaller peak than on these grand scales. But for you right now, this is horrible. How do we live right now in preparation for the end when Jesus returns or in the midst of these other tribulations and circumstances that can drown us or defeat us? But it is not in trying to figure out exactly how and when it will be, but trusting in the one who knows all things and who holds on to us in the midst of all things. So first, people, we are really dying to find out the future. But Jesus, in his kindness, secondly, gives helpful warnings to look out for at all times, not just at the end, not just when he's coming back in his second coming, but helpful warnings to look out for at all times. Jesus gives his people here, as he continues speaking in verse 4 and following, helpful warnings to look out for at all times. He answered them and he said, verse four, see that no one leads you astray. That's one of them. Be watching out for someone who wants to lead you astray. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. Don't be one of them. That's the first one. Don't be led astray by many antichrists who come. There will not be one. There's lots of antichrists. There's already been lots of antichrists. In Acts chapter 5, the gospel, uh, excuse me, Luke writes and he says in verse 35, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Verse 36, for before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, verse 37, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew some people away after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. You have people already in the early stages of the local church who are already desiring to lead people astray. Many who come in the name of Christ who are desiring malicious doings, who are wanting to bring about people following after them instead of following after Christ and ultimately to their destruction spiritually. Many will follow after them. Don't you be one of them. How do we not be one of them who are led astray? By knowing all the details about when Jesus is going to return in a chart and a graph about prophecy? No. It never did it for me and I grew up with the stuff. What will keep us from going astray is by knowing Christ himself Instead of becoming imbalanced with all the biblical facts, where I only think about this area of the Bible, prophecy, and end times, it's keeping balanced on the person of the scriptures, the person that is for us as God's people that we need to know. Think about the audacity of the disciples. They're asking about the end, and the one who holds the end is right in front of them. Jesus, when will this happen? Tell us about the events, what to look out for. And he's right there. Tell us more about who you are. What it's going to be like to rule and reign with you for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. We're people of details and focus on the details and can get imbalanced. But not being led astray, let's focus on the truth. 
If there's antichrist come desiring to lead us away, let us know the true Christ. Let us go deeper into who Christ is himself, desiring to pursue after God. Read the scriptures, asking God, show me who you are in the text. I want to know you, not just data about you or things that you have done, the details of things, but show me who you are. This is why when people come up to me and ask me Bible trivia questions, they think the pastor is the Bible trivia guy. I'm happy to say I don't know. I don't know what Jephthah's vow was ultimately or what the final determination of his daughter was. I don't know, that's in Judges somewhere, okay? But there's all of these things. So was it really 300 men that Gideon fought with? I don't know. Sometimes the biblical authors probably rounded up and made it seem it's about this many. Did they really count in the census this round number? Why are all the numbers round in the scriptures? 14,000 exact people in that tribe? Mm Mm-hmm, to the number. Or is it about 14,000? I don't know. So all of those details, that's not the point. But we can get too fixated on those things and miss God himself. There'll be lots of antichrists. Don't follow after him. But follow after the true Christ. They will lead many astray. Don't you be one of them. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Well, those have certainly taken place. For all of human history, wars have taken place. There's rumors of wars right now. There's a nation invading another nation. Other nations who are now not wanting them to invade them, so they're teaming up with other nations to help keep that nation from invading them. There's all of these things that are happening right now and always have been. So how do we know, or how has anyone known, in the last 2,000 years of church history, if this, right now, this war that's happening, this is the one, and Jesus is returning right now? Well, he didn't. And he hasn't yet, but he might be soon. He can be at any time. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. You see that? Two things so far. See that you're not led astray. See that you're not alarmed. Don't be taking this too to where you are all of a sudden now, sounding the alarm, this is it. Oh, just take it easy. Trust in me. You're going to hear of these things. These things must take place. But notice what he says at the end of verse 6. The end is not yet. How helpful. This is not the end. There will be great devastation. There will be lots of wars and rumors of wars, but this is not yet. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. Again, this is not yet. This is not the end. Don't be alarmed. All of these are but the beginnings of birth pains. There's lots of, oh, is that it? Is the baby coming when a woman is pregnant, especially for the very first time, right? You have Braxton Hicks, is that the right word? You have all of these things that feel like, oh, I, I think that's it. I think he's coming. And sometimes girls even go to the hospital. I think the baby's here. I think he's coming. And the doctor's like, go home, sweetie. Not yet. This isn't it. I know it feels like it. I know you think it is, but not yet. All of these things that feel like it. And, and in our gut, we're going, this is it. This has got to be it. Things are so terrible right now. This cannot be not the end. Is that right? Double negative. So this is the end. Knows that. Not yet. At least we don't know yet. But for 2,000 years, it hasn't been yet. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been sounding the alarm. This is it. Just trust in me. Trust in Christ. 
When I say trust in me, I'm saying trust in Christ, not in me as your pastor, but trust in Christ as he speaks to us, calming us, not letting us get all of a sudden worked up over circumstances, but resting in who he is, even when he moves on to verse 9. See, those things are happening out there, but now all of a sudden verse 9 moves within here. They will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my sake, for my name's sake. Many will fall away. So not only will you be persecuted, will personal persecution, tribulation, suffering be happening, but also interpersonal within your own relationships. As people fall away, as people hate one another, betray one another. As brother turns in another brother for being a Christian, as one says, there's a church that meets in that house. If Christianity is illegal and people turning one, one another in to the governing authorities and hate one another, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. The love of many will grow cold. People will be falling away. All of this sin will be rampant. People will betray you. Relationships will be hindered greatly. Lawlessness will be reigning. It seems like that, doesn't it? It seems like things are completely upside down. And in every age, I bet Christians have said the exact same thing. One author writes and he says, all nine of these preliminary events that Jesus states here, in fact, occurred historically before AD 70. All nine of them did. Though most, if not all, have reoccurred many times since then as well. Various messianic pretenders arose. He mentions the ones that we said in Acts 5. The war of Israel against Rome began in A.D. 66 and 67. Famines ravaged Judea, as predicted in Acts 11. Earthquakes shook Laodicea in A.D. 60 and 61. Persecution dogged believers' footsteps throughout Acts. Internal dissension tore apart the church at Corinth. And what God even caused, oh, and even so that God caused some to die. Numerous New Testament epistles were written primarily to warn about false teachers and perversions of Christianity, most notably Galatians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, 2 Peter, and Jude. Arguably, the concept of love running cold most aptly characterized the days of the Nero persecutions of Christians in the mid-60s, A.D., like first century. Paul finally, with whatever rationale, could claim that by at least the late 50s, the gospel had gone out to all of the known world or empire at its time. Romans chapter 10, verse 18 says, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So while we clamor for and are dying to know what's going to happen in the end, hey, we instead of fixing our eyes on details, look to these helpful warnings that Jesus gives to look out for at all times. May we be wary of those who desire to lead us astray. May we not be alarmed when all of these things are happening as though this must be the end. This is the worst it's ever been. May we not be regularly sounding the alarm, but trusting in the one who has gone before us, the one who is coming again for us. 
Because in verse 13, the whole point of this passage, these first 14 verses, comes to verse 13, where it says, watch out for all these things out there. Be aware of these things. Know these things. But, verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. All this other clamor and all this turmoil is happening outside. All these things are going. Wars and rumors of wars and uh, earthquakes and all these things that are huge and big and causing all this noise and devastation and raucous. In verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Brothers and sisters, the primary issue is perseverance, not prescience, not knowing everything that's coming, but enduring to the end, persevering to the end. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. That is going to happen. Some will be led astray, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. But Jesus says the one who endures until the end, no matter what may come, no matter any of these other circumstances, the one who endures to the end, all the buildings around you may fall like the temple is going to be destroyed, not a stone laying upon another stone, but the one who endures to the end. You might not know exactly the order of events. Do you remember Jesus said you can't know? But if we don't know all of those events, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The issue is perseverance, not knowing all of the details, not being able to formulate this is going to happen and this is going to happen. So when we look at what do we do in light of the end? How do we live this life in the midst of our circumstances? It's stop fixating on the when, on the what, and the how, but focus on Jesus, persevering in him, no matter what, until death takes you or he returns. First Peter chapter 1, a wonderful passage beginning in verse three, written to those brothers and sisters who have been taken from their homes and those who are on the run, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter writes. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that is kept in heaven for you. How? How can it be? Verse 5 says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your souls. Jesus says in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. But in case they do, 
Verse 29, my father who has given to them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand, and I and my father are one. Know Jesus, know the father, pursue knowing Christ. This is Paul's desire in Philippians chapter three, that he might know Christ, the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, that he might attain the resurrection of the dead. The end will come. So let us as God's people give the gospel to those who are around us and pursue knowing Christ and in so doing live holy lives. Notice as Jesus says in verse 14, in this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Let us be people who endure to the end and who continue with our dying breaths to proclaim the gospel throughout the whole world that Jesus has come, that he has died on the cross for our sins, that Jesus willingly gave up his life. He went to hell for us. He endured all of these things for you and for I that we don't have to that we by his grace and his keeping power, as he mentioned in John 10, might keep us, that we endure to the end and that we give the gospel to all the nations. Let us not spend our time and all of our energy as God's people, especially as we grow in age, when we are closer to seeing Jesus and our desire is to fixate more on end times, Let us not, but instead, let us not try to solve when Jesus is returning while knowing that no one is able to know that. Let us not fixate on the details of wars or what countries are in power and prepping for the end, but let us fixate on Jesus and knowing him, living like he lived and longing for his return and let us endure to the end. That's the message Jesus gives his believers. He is coming. The end will come. But endure to the end. That one will be saved. Never give up. Endure to the end. The temptation to quit and to give up and renounce Jesus will be more seductive and harder than you can imagine to say no to. But let us as God's people be resolved now through the warnings that Christ gives here to fortify ourselves in the faith to grow in our trust of Jesus, rely solely on his grace for today and in all the days to come until we see him face to face. Let us endure to the end. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we are so grateful for the message that Jesus gives us that in the end, it's not about our knowledge and knowing all of the details of when you will come and how it will happen, of making sure we're looking for a specific sign or not and worrying if we missed it, but that we continue to press into you, persevering until the end. Would you grant us grace to do just that? Would you give us great joy in Jesus, greater than we can have in anything else? We prayed for that before the message, that we would not be like Jeremiah as he's praying for the people who long after idols, but we would be longing after Christ. Father, would you continue to grant us grace as your people, desiring to pursue, persevere until the end? And would you continue to work in those who do not yet know you? Those who 
don't know what might happen at the end when you come. They don't believe you will come again. They don't believe that you ever existed, that this is all a farce, a crutch for emotionally unstable people who don't know, uh, who can't rely on their own uh, efforts or their own intellect and who need something else. Father, would you open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel, that they are not the ones who need to resolve all of human history. They can't do it anyway. But it's not left up to guesswork. It's left up to you. And at the end, when they stand before you face to face, they will long to have been worshipers of you because they will acknowledge that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, Father, we pray in your mercy, grant them grace. In your mercy, open their eyes to see Jesus, to reckon they are a sinner in need of salvation. And we pray that you would do so today. Father, would you continue to spread the gospel, as Jesus mentions here, to all the nations? Would you use us as your people to do that? Would you use us as your people to endure to the end, proclaim your gospel until you come or we see you face to face? And Father, would you grant us great joy in seeing Jesus? And may our joy be in fullest in him. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.